is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast. Uh, that's right, Matt Law special time. Now that the window is over, the dust is settled, Matt. Here we are with a shiny new Enzo in the parking lot at Cobham. Yeah, shiny new. Well, there's not eight new parking, not eight new cars in the parking lot because Gusto doesn't come until the summer. But there's certainly seven new cars in that parking lot. They'll have to make some new spaces, but not not many have left in the end. Rob Green was saying that on uh, a BBC podcast, recapping it, and he was like, "I I don't know if Chelsea have enough lockers in the dressing room <laughs> for all the players. Like, how awkward would that be?" I think I worked out today that the senior squad is now 33. Although there are players within that senior squad who could drop down to the under-23s or something, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a bloated squad. It's a big squad. It will be. It's a full car park at the best of times. So I'm I'm down there tomorrow. So I'm, I'm next time I see you, I'll report back or I'll ping you a message. You can tell. I'll let you know whether people are car sharing yet or not. <laughs> Chelsea's going to offer a discount if if players carpool their way in, like we have here in America. <laughs> exactly. Oh, funny. Well, obviously, we'll be breaking down Chelsea's incredible transfer window uh, today. Enzo Fernandez got across the line. Ziyech didn't get their move, and maybe a couple others, but Jorginho does. He does the classic over thirty move to Arsenal. So. Um, uh, funny, it's good script writing here from Dan, Matt. He says, L.A. owners deliver Hollywood ending to winter transfer window. Uh, it was certainly a transfer window that went down to the final seconds and even a little extra time. Um, we're ju- we're not even 24 hours removed recording this, right? Where obviously Chelsea breaking the English club transfer record to sign Enzo Fernandez from Benfica. We've all slept. Not sure you have. How was your day yesterday, Matt? How did it go for you almost over the last 48 hours? Because Enzo Fernandez was obviously the big one, but he wasn't the only one. Yeah, look, I, I, I knew this was coming. I didn't like it. I'm not going to say I knew ages ago that Fernandez was going to go this late, but I knew the way Chelsea's transfer window had gone and the way the summer went, I knew that we were in for a transfer deadline day where something was happening. There was no way this ownership were going to have a quiet deadline day with their feet up so whether it had been Fernandez or someone else I'd been prepared for weeks for the fact that this transfer deadline day was a clear your diary it's going to be a 12-hour shift forget it so that didn't take me by surprise I first got wind that Chelsea were back in for Fernandez on Saturday night I wrote something about it on Sunday um, about the fact that they'd gone in reopened the tour from that moment on, it was always going to go to the wire, always. The size of that deal, trying to do that deal in, in let's say, they, they went back in Saturday. So they basically, over the course of roughly 72 hours, a bit more, to do a British record transfer was always going to go to the wire. So right from Saturday when I first got wind of it, and then Sunday when I wrote it, I knew that we were in for a long one. And I've got to say, Right until probably 9pm on deadline day, I think it was in the balance all the way through. I mean, there was optimism, there was hope, there was confidence. That sort of went up and down, which I can talk you through if you want me to. But um, until about 9pm, 9pm I would say I started to think, I I got a few messages and I thought, yeah, this, this is happening now, I'm pretty confident now. I say, well, I mean, you can talk about, was there like a tipping point with everything? Um... Yeah, it's a cliche, but it was a roller coaster. I mean, Saturday, actually Saturday and Sunday, there was a lot of optimism. I think when they went back and reopened talks, they got a better response than possibly they feared or thought they would. I think they they realized pretty quickly um, that there was a negotiation to be had, albeit a very difficult negotiation, but there was a negotiation to be had. So Saturday and Sunday, the feeling was really good. Um, Monday, the feeling was pretty good. And then actually deadline day, up until the evening, it was fairly negative. Like they clearly weren't giving up and they weren't saying it's dead, but the messaging was just constantly, this is really difficult. It's going to be really close. It's not easy. Optimism, not as good. So actually deadline day itself was the least optimistic I think they'd been up until the late stages. It sounds like a lot of the reporting, and you can obviously correct us if we're wrong, was it, they wanted they wanted the full amount, right? They wanted $120 million, the buyout clause. Chelsea didn't want to because they obviously wanted 
to amortize the cost, you know, structure the deal in a way that they could do payments, whether it's if it's the fee, then they have to give it all up front. They have to, from an accounting exercise, they have to put 120 million on the books. Nobody wants to do that. The fee of potentially only 34 million pounds up front and then five installments after that, like Rui Costa, that was like the number one thing they're saying. They wanted close to 80. I ha- this seems to have like ended up being highly favorable for Chelsea. Is that how you understand it? Look, I think when you pay in, however you end up paying it, if you're if you end up paying 100, I'm, I'm going to talk in pounds just because that's how I write. So it just yeah. comes more naturally to me. Um if you end up talking a fee of 106 million pounds of British record, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I, it's difficult to kind of describe that as a, as a win as such because it's just such an enormous fee for someone who uh, sort of in the summer went for, for such a low fee to Benfica. Um, but I would say that I think what we can say is probably Rui Costa ended up blinking first because Throughout yesterday, the negotiation was centred around Chelsea wanted to do it with a payment up front like they've done of around £34-35 million and five staggered payments. Now, for most of yesterday and early evening, Rui Costa would just not accept that and was talking about doing it over two payments, over three payments, if they wanted to do it over the five payments. I think there was even a discussion, if you want to do it your way over the five payments, then you can't have them until the summer. I think Enzo Fernandez probably helped in that and that he he made it very clear he he, he wouldn't be very happy about staying till the summer and it could end up being a bit of a disruption for them. Um, so I think we can say that actually Rui Costa did end up blinking because he ended up coming round to what Chelsea's sort of final negotiation point was. But that was not Chelsea's starting position. So there's been movement on both sides here. Well, it, and you had said... Uh, in your tweet that Beddad Bali was really the driver in this. And I think that's what we had heard, right, from reading your articles and things. He was the one who was was leading the charge. Do you feel like he was so big on it because the the scouting team and maybe the data that everyone had been looking at said, hey, he has the potential to be a generational talent. It's worth going all in. And so he just was like, I'm going to show what I can do. It's been, you know, bully cooked in the summer. It's my turn on this one. <laughs> well, he actually he actually led on Mudrick as well. I mean, Bo, it's funny because all the press is always around Todd Bowley because he's become this public face. Um, he's a little bit, there's a, there feels a little bit more celebrity around Todd Bowley um, from the whole takeover process, from the fact he's involved with the Dodgers, from the fact he owns the Golden Globes. He wears his aviator sunglasses. He takes a lot of the press, particularly in England. Um, in actual fact, I, I wrote about it a while ago. Since Todd has stepped back from being the interim sporting director, he has actually stepped back. But funnily enough, that has seemed to have coincided with, with Badad deciding to be a bit more hands-on in this. And he he took a very hands-on approach to Mudrich. Um, and he's, he certainly took a very hands-on approach to Enzo Fernandez. Now, what I do think that is probably to do with is also the size of the fees involved. You know, if you're talking 88 million pound deals, if you're talking 106 million pound deals, you've you've probably got to have the money man involved. And let's not beat about the bush. It's, it's not a secret that Clear Lake are the major money behind the ownership. It's an equal ownership between Bowley and Clear Lake. But Clear Lake, because of the investment company, do have more money behind them. And I do think there's an element of when there's that much money involved, the guy in charge of that money is going to take a hands-on view. He's not just going to leave it completely in the hands of others. But yeah, Iqbali flew out to Turkey for Mudrich. This time he didn't fly out to Portugal, but he he based himself in London and he was on it for, I mean, I wrote 12 hours, but I actually afterwards thought about it and thought it probably was more than 12 hours. I, I tried to work it out and it's, it's probably more like 14, 15, 16 hours he was on it. And Again, I'm told, I'm not spoken to him personally, but again, I'm told he just would not take no for an answer. Now, that's not to say, I do want to give Paul Wynn Stanley a big mention in this, because I'm, I'm told that Paul Wynn Stanley over January and, and in these deals has played a huge, huge part. And I think he's he's really impressed people down at Cobham and at Chelsea. Um, so I don't think Badad should take all the credit at all. But it's obviously interesting that an owner takes that much responsibility over a signing. I guess so. I mean, there's... I think the other thing, right, is this ownership group, how quickly they've learned. 
you know, we all, you know, you said in the summer they may be overpaid for Raheem and, and Koulibaly based on, you know, especially with Kaladu, kind of his contract situation and his age, which now, you know, I'm not going to write off Koulibaly, but it's it hasn't clicked maybe the way we wanted to. They have gone complete opposite in this, right? Everyone 22 and younger, these eight, eight and a half, seven and a half year deals, uh, has your perspective changed on their approach? Like, have what what crash course did they take in three months that they've come back and look like a completely different different team? Well, look, I mean, the, the simple answer is they've seen the squad and they've seen the team. In the summer, they were doing it blind. They they you know they've been on preseason and they can watch they can watch football on TV and stuff. But the, they they were doing it blind. They hadn't seen this squad together. They hadn't seen them at close quarters. They hadn't been attending enough matches to make a judgment. They hadn't been around the dressing room. They hadn't been inside the building talking to Neil Batham people. They were doing it blind in the summer. Um, now they're not doing it blind. Now, I would argue they're still overpaying for people. I don't think you can spend as much money as they're spending without arguing they're overpaying. If they've got the money, it doesn't really matter if they're overpaying, quite frankly, as long as they've got the money to do so. But um, they've this is them not doing it blind. So what it tells me is that they've spent four or five months looking at this squad and the team that, that was there, and even with the signings that they made, and decided they didn't like it much. You know, they it's, it's quite clear. You don't sign eight players in January if you like the squad. They obviously thought it was too old. I think they felt that there's a bit of player power in there that they're, they're due to crush. I think they've decided that this squad hadn't been regenerated enough, that it needed a complete overhaul. There's clearly a big clear outcome in which they've, they've tried to start in January, but that's going to gather massive pace in the summer. And it's as simple as that. You can't get away from it. They've obviously looked at the players on the squad and not really liked it and decided to change it, both in terms of personnel and profile, i.e. the ages and the, the contract lengths, because I think they, apart from the FFP thing, which is clearly a, a major player in the, these contract lengths, the other thing is is they they'd come into the club where the contracts had they walked into a problem on the contracts. Players had left, players were leaving because of the contracts. They were having to renegotiate contracts very quickly. They don't want to be in that situation again. Yeah, understandable, obviously. Um, I've just been so surprised at the quick turnaround. And I would say that a lot of the signings, you know, some for today, a lot for tomorrow, they seem to be very data-driven. The metrics, they're starting to craft a player profile pretty quickly. Um, you know, I think the only thing that we lost was not having that right back immediately to cover. But if they found the person they wanted and they at least got them in for the long run, then again, you just kind of sit here and go, all right, well, it seems like they were level-headed for the most part in this window. That transfer from an outside perspective and a reporter's perspective, that transfer is my favorite transfer that they've done because it shows strategy. And I've written before and I've talked about before the fact that I felt some of what they've done is scattergun. And I'm not going to apologize for that or change my opinion on that. I, I firmly believe that. That was one where I saw real strategy, though, and I, that's why I like it so much. That they, they, I know that Lawrence Stewart hasn't actually formally started. I think he formally starts maybe tomorrow on February the 2nd, but certainly in February. But he has been helping them. And I know that he did a lot of research into this player. Obviously, he has good, good links in France. And um, the the decision among all of them that this guy was was the best possible fit for competition for Reese for to deputize Reese but also to play and allow Reese to possibly play in other positions as well this guy was it for them and I'm so impressed on this signing that they have been willing to wait rather than panic when they couldn't get it became very clear as soon as they put the bid in that they weren't getting to get it in this window and instead of panicking and you know maybe trying to uh, maybe trying to go in on Porro with Tottenham or someone else. No, they left it to the summer of strategy there, and actually that is why that one is my what I would class my sort of favorite of the deals. Yeah, I, I it makes sense, you know. And, and to your point, like that's what we had talked about. If they're gonna wait, get the right one. Um, you know, it's funny. Someone you know has have been comparing other transfer windows and. Uh, it's been really interesting. Uh, no, you know, panic loans right at the the last day just to get a body in or things like that. You know, they really yeah. stuck hard for it. So uh, I'm 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 impressed. I think most Chelsea fans are super excited. Um, but 
uh, we do want to talk about kind of the outgoings and a lot of the shuffling on that. So we're going to take a quick ad break. Thanks to the sponsors. And we'll be right back. All right, Matt. So on the flip side, uh, not everything went maybe to plan on deadline day. The ZH deal collapsed uh, due to paperwork issue. It sounds like more information is coming out about that. I have well, questions. I've got an update on that. I've got All an right. update. Do you want an update? I got an update about 20 minutes before I came on the show. So the reports from French, France have been claiming that they sent through the wrong documentation three times. And there also also been a suggestion that people took their eye off the ball because they were completing the Fernandez deal. Uh, now, I've spoken to people involved in this, this CH deal, both at Chelsea and around the CH deal. What they tell me is that um, basically the loan agreement document uh, came, was drawn up by Chelsea in plenty of time, the, the deadline. It was sent to PSG, who signed it and then sent it back to Chelsea to sign, which is normal process. Now, this is the bit where I'm going to have to leave people to make their own minds up whether they believe this. But from what I'm told, uh, Chelsea signed it sent it back with over an hour of the, the deadline to go. And they felt that that, that, that was that. They'd, they'd signed it, they'd sent it off. Shortly before 11pm, they suddenly got a panic communication from, from PSG saying that they hadn't received the document. And it, it, it turned out, I'm told, again, people have to make their own minds up what they believe, that there was a, a glitch in the technology and the email they thought had been sent hadn't actually gone through and was either sitting in a draft somewhere or sitting in an unsent box somewhere. Technological problem hadn't got through. PSG came on in a flap saying we need it. We, they they resent it again, saying we need this back, we need this back. Chelsea worked as quickly as possible to get it back within minutes. And it literally went out of the, the inbox, uh, or the outbox, should I say, at 11 p.m. They crossed their fingers and prayed that that was going to just about see them through. Obviously, a deal sheet hadn't been lodged because of the fact that this had all been going on and people thought it had been done. And unfortunately, ultimately, the email sent with 11 p.m. ended up being too late. They completely understand why ZH is so upset. They completely understand why PSG are so frustrated and angry. Um, but they do privately reject these accusations that they somehow sent incorrect documents three times which obviously makes them look a little bit amateurish right um and, and my thing is like this seems like the textbook reason for an appeal <laughs> like no malintent you know technology issues it sounds like league uh they were having tech issues even like at their their league office so i don't know this seems like the perfect time to activate a, a that's why they lodged that's that's why they lodged the appeal to the lfp um but it's been thrown out. I, I I suspect the problem is if they they let something like this go through, it can open the floodgates to people talking about lost emails and lost documents and things like that. And as I say, there will be pe there will be people out there. I can only report to you what I'm told. I'm told by people I have no reason not to trust. But I know there'll be people listening to this who will maybe not believe that reason or that excuse. Maybe the people at the LFP didn't believe that reason or that excuse. I can only speculate on that. Ultimately, it hasn't gone through. It's very unfortunate. And it's it's actually now created quite a difficult situation for Graham Potter to manage because clearly ZH is going to come back quite upset. Uh, he's going to come back knowing that the club were, were ready to get rid of him. Um, there's Champions League registration issues, though I'd imagine he will be registered for the Champions League. But it, it leaves the club and the manager with an unhappy player till the end of the season. Um and they've just got to try and make it work as best they can now. Yeah, that's tough, obviously. You know, and, and I think every fan should expect him to come back, you know, a bit sulking. You know, if any of us were in that situation, I think, you know, that's only normal, you know, behavior in that sense. So, like you said, it is going to be a, a bit of a managing situation. You know, part of it is, I'm, you know, priority was with with Hakim's or I'm sorry with Enzo Fernandez deal but you know the the club's used to juggling these things they've got multiple people who can help with it so that's um, that's what I was told I mean it, it's it's slightly laughable to suggest that they've taken their eye off the ball because of Enzo Fernandez because that makes it sound like there are one or two people dealing with this in a little office broom cupboard somewhere I mean Chelsea got a team of people they've got loads of lawyers 
They've got people like Dave Barnard, secretary who's extremely experienced and done millions and millions of these deals to, to, to try and make it look like there's, there's one guy trying to juggle these two and decided to prioritise one because it's bigger is, is kind of quite laughable, to be honest with you. There'd have been a huge team on this. I'm not saying someone hasn't made a mistake somewhere, but it's not it's not because they've decided they, they can't deal with doing two transfers at once. They, these, these are people who've dealt with, you know, tens of transfers at once before. For sure. Uh, at least it wasn't a fax machine. We're, we're evolu- you know, <laughs> evolving in the transfer process. Um, but he wasn't the only one that fell apart. Uh, Omari Hutchinson didn't get his move to West Brom. They pivoted at the last minute. Mark Albrighton instead and Xavier Simons. Uh, same thing for for them. So um, I think the Omari Hutchinson is just unfortunate, you know, kind of like rug pulled at the last second. Nick's Nick's complaint was why not let a young have a young player's deal locked up before it doesn't really matter to the first team if Omari leaves even though he has been on the bench and gotten a few minutes my 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 criticism of this transfer window would be there's not been enough outs there should be more outs I get that it's hard to start the clear out of the first team squad players in earnest because there's not many clubs out there in January with the money or the ability to pay the wages I get that I wrote a piece about the clear out a few weeks ago and made it clear that that would really gather pace in the summer. But I do think they've kept too many players. And I do think that will be the issue for the second half of the season. How, I I said at the start of the show, I think there's 33 senior players. Uh, Senior players include people like Carney, Chuck Wemmicka, but they came to join the senior squad. Um, And Daptro for Fafana and people. And managing that amount of players is going to be very difficult. And I... I agree, was it Nick you said he said it, I agree with Nick that certainly the younger side of those players, I think there could have been a little bit more foresight to arrange some loans and things earlier in the window because quite frankly, if they hadn't have got players in, it wasn't going to be a problem if a lot of those lads were ended up on loan. And I think there's going to be a lot of people, there's just too many people in the building for for half the season really. And you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not making a big. I'm not going to start hammering them over it. Um, but that would be my one criticism of the of the January transfer window that they, they should have got more players out. Right, and I mean, there's there's the new rules, right? With uh, the number of you can have eight players out on loan, and I mean, and if one of those spots is being taken by Timu Bakayoko, like the haunt, the ghosts of our past are still haunting us. <sighs> Oh, yeah. I mean, clearly this, you know, clearly they're still having to work with what they've inherited. Um, But also some of it's their own making. They've signed a lot of young players themselves, you know, so I don't think we can give them a total free pass on that. They've signed a lot of young players themselves who could have already gone out on loan and now will just be part of squad either playing under 23 football or, or very little football. And there will be people in that that squad now who are unhappy. But Again, actually, in fairness to the ownership, but one thing I should mention as well is lots of players don't want to leave Chelsea. I mean, Cobham is a fantastic environment. You'll, you'll find that, actually, I've had this told to me so many times before, actually convincing players to leave Chelsea is very, very difficult um, because they once they get into that Cobham environment, that competitive environment, they tend to not really want to leave it unless they absolutely have to. Dev squad in first right now. Um 18s in second, but it seems like West Ham are running away with that one. So there's also, you know, opportunities to be had. Just so everyone's aware on the loans, it's a FIFA rule as well. You've got um, Ethan Ampadu, Bakioko, Hudson Adoy, Malagusto, technically is now added to the list, Lukaku, Sar, and Ziesh, uh, which you'd drop Ziesh off, you're six of eight. So uh, it's just there's a lot of of managing uh, Chelsea youth posted that. And he also kind of like is starting to look at the homegrown, non-homegrown B list for Premier League and Champions League and all these different rules. Bully and uh, Bedad, they're about to learn squad construction and uh, competition rules real quick, Matt, because Premier League has rules. Then the, like the FA competitions have different rules, and then the Champions League has another set of rules. So you know it, Potter's going to be like, "All right, I need my Champions League group on this pitch. I need my," and then exactly. the rest of you guys are going to go get ready for Fulham at the weekend. <laughs> I mean, there's there's eight new signings in January, seven of whom have, have joined the club immediately. Uh, actually, bring that down to six because Andre Santos hasn't got his work permit to, to play for Chelsea yet. So the six who are eligible to play for Chelsea. 
And by the time the show goes out, the, the squad might have been announced, but only three of those can be put on the Champions You can only register three new players onto the Champions League squad. Just to clarify real quick, sorry. And that's, that's saying um, you can only change three names. It's not like, oh, because Jorginho left or whatever, like now it's four, right? It's like you literally can only make three changes to your roster. No, you can make more than three, but you can only register three new players onto the roster. So you could bring players who are ready at the club could change around. But in terms of new signings who have joined in January, new registrations, you can only put three on. To be quite honest with you, I didn't even know that rule before this transfer window because I've never been involved with a club where that would be an issue. You know, I've never known a club sign more than three first-team players in the January transfer window who are in the Champions League. Um, so it's never become an issue, but they can only register three of those new signings, no matter what happens with people coming off or leaving or, or being juggled around. Um, and obviously, Ziyech staying means that he he doesn't free a registration spot. So my guess would be that they will, and this is my guess, and like I say, the squad may already be announced by the time this goes to air. My guess would be that they they register three of their new signings. I would guess that Mudrich, Fernandez, and Felix, and I would guess that Bettinelli might come off the Champions League list, and the third choice goalkeeper goes to a youth player who doesn't take at one of the senior spots because it would be very it would be super harsh to have what happened to ZH happen and then take him off the registration for the Champions League that would be I mean, at that point you just pay him to go on vacation you're like exactly. I'm sorry exactly. man like look we're gonna own this but <laughs> this, this isn't gonna work out like on us <laughs> exactly Explore the world exactly. Uh, I hope not that would be that would just be the the worst and of course it's he had nothing to do with it. So, and it sounds like if anything, Ziyech was more than flexible about making that deal work, you know, in terms of personal terms and things like that. So he was willing to play the game. It benefited both sides. Shame it didn't, didn't go. Um, one that did pop. How about this? Jorginho to Arsenal. Did you have this on your bingo card, Matt? Not to Arsenal. Um, easy, easy to kind of say from a distance though, but I did, I always felt there was an outside chance if they started to move on a midfielder that Jorginho could go in this window. I'd written a piece recently that he, that he was definitely going to go in the summer, that the contract wasn't going to happen. Um, and it was always said to me, look, if, if things move around and juggle in January, a club comes in, there is a chance because they would take a fee on him. Um, now, I'm slightly kicking myself because Mikel Arteta tried to sign him for Arsenal, I think 2020 or 2021, when after Arsenal won the FA Cup when, when Frank was still there. He actually tried to sell Jorginho to Arsenal to try and sign Declan Rice. Um, and the club blocked it. Chelsea blocked it. They didn't want to do it. Um, Arsenal wanted to do it then. So there's always been that link there. And obviously Arteta was at City and City had tried to sign Jorginho before actually Chelsea signed, originally signed him for Sarri. Um, so it kind of makes a lot of sense. Look, on the book value alone, in a purely accounting terms, with six months left on his contract, Jorginho was roughly worth £5 million on the books. They've got 10 rising to 12, so they've pretty much got double the book value. They've obviously got rid of the wage that frees up. I think Enzo Fernandez will be on considerably less than what Jorginho was earning. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure he is. So that wage actually comes down a little bit. Um, it just makes sense. There's, there's literally, if they were going for the league title and they were going for the FA Cup and they're in the... You know, if they're fighting on all fronts, then I might think it, it was a bit silly. But they're, they're basically the 10th in the Premier League and they're in the Champions League, you know, and they've got Enzo Fernandes coming in. They're going to be able to cope. So I think it just made sense for everyone to do that. Deal. I think it's a good deal for everyone. And, you know, with this being done, I guess, you know, Jorginho's agent is not shy of talking a lot. <laughs> haven't really heard a whole lot. I mean... I guess, do you, was it just a convenience for Jorginho? Was he agitating for a January move? Do you know? I don't think he was agitating, no. I never got that idea. But I, I do think, I think some of the older players, and I would put Aspie in this as well, have, have found the change at Chelsea probably more difficult to deal with than the younger players. Because these guys have been at Chelsea a long time. They've been senior players who've been, been involved in decision-making and involved in the sort of culture that was there before. And I think the change of culture probably affects them slightly more than the younger players who 
maybe don't get quite in, as involved in what goes on in the background and, and, and that kind of thing and relationships within the club. Um, so I, I, I don't think Jorginho was agitated for it because clearly he was going to move for free at the end of the season anyway. He was in a bit of a win-win situation in terms of his own personal place. But I, I, I don't think he was probably that comfortable at Chelsea, shall we say, is, is probably the best way I can put it in that I, I think he'd come to realise that he'd, it was time to go, whether it be January or the summer. I, okay. I mean, I think that that may, makes sense. Also, you know, you look at it from our perspective, you know, um, I think a lot of people have taken the piss out of it a little bit. You know, the, like I said earlier, the over 30 natural transition to Arsenal, you know, but they're going to get an experienced player uh, in a position they need. Our, obviously, he fits in Arteta mold. You know, Pep Guardiola wanted to sign Jorginho as well. We know Arteta is of the school of Pep. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see. I'm sure Jorginho's like, well, look, I don't have a Premier League title. It's a good chance to get it. You know, I, he doesn't have to move his family. Life doesn't really change that much. So he's... He's a, and he's, you know, he's been brought up at a Chelsea culture, what I was talking about, this winning culture. Like you say, he hasn't got a Premier League title, but he's got Champions League, he's got Europa League. He's, Club he's World got, Cup. He's, he's, Club World Cup, exactly. He he knows how to get over the line. He's, he's won the Euros with Italy. I mean, for Arsenal, in the situation they're currently in, at the top of the Premier League, but with a very young squad and with a squad where the, there's really not anyone in there who's, who's particularly won anything, if, if this was Chelsea making this signing in the same circumstances, you'd be saying, great signing, can get you over the line. Um, I get why Chelsea players, fans take the piss out a little bit, and I find it quite funny, to, to be honest with you, because it is, it's amusing. But um, I think I think he makes a lot of sense for them. I, I just think sometimes you've got to say it's a good deal. It's a good deal for the player. He gets, he gets longer onto his contract. He gets to stay in London, doesn't have to move. Life is good. You can make sense of it from a Chelsea point of view and you can make sense of it from an Arsenal point of view. You don't always have to have winners and losers in transfers. Honestly, I think all around, like, this is this is handshakes. Like, this makes yeah, sense. Exactly. Like you said, for Chelsea, he's taken, he's he's one of the highest minute um, person people in the midfield. We need to, to revamp the midfield, right? Enzo's coming in. He's going to play. Hopefully, Conte starts to get fit. Kova, Ruben, whoever, you know, Connor's still in there. It's just kind of like the right time to let him, you know, move on. So I, I think it's just, like I said, handshakes all around. Everyone wins on that one. Um, do you think that Chelsea bodied Arsenal a little bit in this window? I think Sky is really driving me crazy, saying that, <laughs> no, actually, by not getting Mudrik, by not getting Felix, and by not getting Caicedo, but Jorginho, instead, Arsenal are actually better. And I'm sitting here going, the mental yeah. gymnastics That's that... That is, you can clip this if you want. That's bollocks. It's total Obviously. bollocks. Hey, clip it. You clip so much of what I say. Clip bollocks from me because it's total <laughs> bollocks. Um, look, you can't you can't turn a club making Mudrich, Felix, and Caicedo their top targets and not getting any of them into some sort of win and some sort of incredible strategy or philosophy or something like that. I, I've just described why I think Jorginho is a good signing for Arsenal. I happen to think Leandro Trossard is a good signing for Arsenal. You can't turn it into a win. They've gone for their top targets. They had three top targets. They would maybe argue two, Madrid and Caicedo, and that Felix was more around the fringes. But three of their top targets, they haven't got any of them. That's just facts. And that happens. We, we don't need to batter them over. I'm not going to start the jumping on the hashtag Edu out campaign. But to try and turn that into some sort of win or some sort of positive, just bollocks. I, that, that's kind of where I'm at. Now, let me try to um, get an extra one by saying, do you think that Chelsea spending that much on Fernandez and kind of almost maybe raising the bar priced Arsenal out of a Casado bid in January? Like, can I claim that as another mental victory that not only did that, we sent them J5, they didn't get Caicedo, who Chelsea been linked with. We got Fernandez. Like, does that count as a block? <laughs> <laughs> You've already confused me. I'm trying to work that out, that mental gymnastics out. Bearing in mind, I haven't had much sleep this month. I can only imagine. Um, what I do think Chelsea have done, I think they have distorted the market and that has worked in their favour because they have so much money. So prices have obviously risen because of what Chelsea have been doing. I don't think the Caicedo price tag gets as big as it, it got without Chelsea 
spending what they did on Mudrich and without Brighton knowing what Arsenal were prepared to spend on Mudrich with, with Chelsea there in the background at the time as well. I mean, do remember at the start of this window, and this is true, I, I've had some blowback on this on, on Twitter and things, but this is perfectly true. At the start of the window, or halfway even through the window, the view from the Chelsea ownership was very much, we're not going to pay £88 million for Mudrich, it's too much. And we're not going to pay the clause on Fernandes, it's too much. They ended up paying them both. It's fine. I don't mind that they paid them both. They've got the money. As long as they're not getting the club into financial problems, fine by me. I'm not going to make a judgment on that. But they did They did end up doing it. And they weren't, that wasn't their strategy. They, they changed strategy. Everyone's allowed to change strategy. But them changing strategy and spending so much has clearly had distorted the market and prices have gone up. That, that's, that's natural. That's bound to happen. When, when anyone, the minute you set a bar, I mean, the minute Liverpool signed Van Dijk, every defender's price went up. The minute Man United signed Harry Maguire, every defender's price rocketed up. It happens with every big, big deal like this. The minute Man City signed Jack Grealish. So, of course, Chelsea have distorted the market. And that may have impacted on Arsenal's ability to sign players. Yeah, but it will have also impacted on other clubs' ability to sign players, quite frankly. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. We're going to take our last ad break. When we get back, we're going to kind of assess it and have a couple more follow-ups for Matt. So again, thanks to the sponsors. All right, Matt, one thing I did have a question is we look to assess kind of the overall window. You know, the numbers that are being quoted, it seems like it's the upfront and the add-ons. Is that normal? I mean, knowing that the add-ons are, you know, only performance-based, but if, you know, when we say Mudrick is 77 million or whatever, well, it's really like 47 and 30. Um, is it because the bigger number just looks better and is is just like crazier? It, it's difficult. It's difficult to say that because here's an example. Fernandez deal. Fernandez deal, like you say, is about 35 million pounds up front with five further payments to come. Now, this isn't add-ons in fairness. Right. But, but I you, agree. But That's you, 106. Yeah. So there's no way you can start writing or talking about that as some sort of £35 million initial deal. Now, the add-ons, it depends a little bit if you know what the add-ons are, and often we don't. Shakhtar have briefed a lot since the Mudrick deal. The part of the problem with the Arsenal bid was that they felt the add-ons were completely unrealistic that they were for winning the Champions League, they were for winning the Ballon d'Or. Now, they haven't said publicly what the add-ons are for Mudrich, but they've said that the Chelsea add-ons, they felt, were much more realistic. And for instance, the Jorginho add-ons on his Arsenal transfer to get up to 12 million is just for Arsenal to win the Premier League and they're top of the Premier League. So that's that's what I would call realistic, whether you think Arsenal are going to win the Premier League or not. So... It's a difficult balancing act, and it's it's a really good question, and it's something I think about when I write. I try to write where I remember to, a deal worth is how I try. So Mudrich, I will try to write, and the, if people go through what I've written, they'll find I haven't always written a deal worth because you just can't always remember to write it, or you, you, you've got so much on. But I do have in my mind on the add-on deals that I try to write a deal worth 88 million, for instance. So it is worth that amount. At the end of the day, they have committed to pay that amount if certain things happen. And as I say, the problem is, is we hear this phrase add-on so much, and it's very rare you know exactly what the add-ons are. Sometimes the add-ons are super easy to achieve, and other times the add-ons are super difficult to achieve. Well, yeah, and and that's like I was saying, you, you'd never really know until the end, but it's also win-win I, the way they're structuring it. So I get it. Um, you know, sometimes, like I guess I think there's a few of the players that are very incentive-heavy that... You know, I know from an accounting perspective, nerd talk, it's a liability on the book, so it's there, but from a yeah. you know, what they pay and whatever, um, I think it's a little inflated, but I get why. So um again, Enzo Fernandez, Malagusto, uh loan the rest of the season will come in the summer, Noni Madueke, Mikala Mudrik, uh, Joao Felix, pure loan, right? No buy option or obligation. No, although I am told on that one that while there's nothing written in with a buy option or obligation, um there's obviously been discussions about what would happen if they want to buy him because there's real confidence on Chelsea's side that should they want to buy João Felix, um, that they seem to know what the deal would be and they seem very confident that that they would do it. Um, so while there's nothing official, I think there's been unofficial talks about what would happen in that scenario. If Chelsea want to buy João Felix, I think they'll buy him, to be honest with you. 
Well, I mean, he's got his opportunity to earn it, right? Um, Benoit Badashiel, Andre Santos, who is killing it right now at the under-20 World Cup. Four goals in four games. I think he's got some assists in there. They're very, very excited about him. They're very excited about him. There's people in the club who would who would argue with you that that's been their best January transfer. They're, they're extremely excited within the club about that lad. I've seen the clips. I haven't seen enough of him to to make a judgment but i've spoken to people who who think they've really pulled a rabbit out of the hat there that's what it seems like ollie glanville is so hyped on him um he's continuing to send us every time santos has it andre has a good touch <laughs> it's in the whatsapp we're getting all these updates uh but then david datro fafana definitely one for the future um overall i think like i said we addressed a lot of the issues um, we injected a ton of youth and excitement. Remember, like post World Cup, things were not fun for Chelsea. The beginning of the January window, fans, we were, it was, the results are still mixed. Um, you know, the Potter, you know, people weren't really sure what he's going to be. You know, we're in 10th. Uh, Drew Liverpool, which you're like, all right, well, you know, way at Anfield, I guess it's a good point. I guess, how do you think the window went in terms of solving short, long term problems? Maybe. Did this put more pressure on Potter with all these buy? I mean, how do you kind of see it with this new long-term vision of of Chelsea Football Club? It's got to put more pressure on Graham Potter. I mean, I, I don't think his position as such is under pressure in that if he doesn't have a good four, five, six, seven, eight games, he's he's going to suddenly be in danger of the sack. But it does it puts more pressure on him because they've they've built him a team and a squad now like full of stars, to be quite honest with you, and and full of players who people doubted whether they'd be able to sign in January. And if simply if you sign that, spend that amount of money, you, you need return on it. So it has put more pressure on him. Um, I'm amazed at what they've been able to do, frankly. I mean, I know that they went into the window thinking, you know, that they'd, they'd love to get a new one, at least one new midfielder. They'd love to address the right back situation, a defender and a, a winger. I think I said it on here. Um, and they've actually done more than that because what they've actually done, which is, I think the first time I've ever really seen it in the January transfer window, my colleague Jason Burt wrote a piece about this, is they've actually addressed the, they've tried to address the short and the long term in a January transfer window, which is completely unheard of. January is usually for quick fixes. It's for sourcing out immediate problems and trying to patch squads up ready for the rest of the season. Well, they haven't done that. They've they've addressed long-term and short-term problems or tried to in one window. Um and try to do sort of squad planning in one window. And, you know, we're going to find out how successful it is, but it's pretty incredible they've sort of been able to do that in terms of the people they brought in and the bodies they brought in. The, the, the difficulty Potter now has is trying to manage it all until the end of the season while it's so bloated. And also managing the uh, short term against the long term, it, it, it's a real leadership challenge for him. I mean, it's it's a it's a real real leadership challenge for him coming up. I'm sure he'll relish it. No one's going to complain about it, um, but it's not easy. It's not easy at all. How involved was Mr. Graham Potter in these signings and transfers and things? That was the whole idea, right? Um, Potter is kind of a numbers guy. Loves the data side. Wants to develop players. Clearly, there was a very specific profile of age and and ability kind of that went into this window. Um, yeah, what, what do you think Potter's involvement was? Well, I can tell you for sure that, that Graham Potter was with Egg Barley all of transfer deadline day in London. It was kind of not by his side the whole day, but obviously in the building and around Egg Barley all day while the Fernandez negotiations were. Because they gave the players a day off. Yeah, but he, he went in. Which is how we got the Kukurea media spot where yes, <laughs> it was yes, broken yes. to him yes, mid-interview. Yes. It's amazing how much that happens, you know. It's amazing when you talk to people how, how much they find out through social media and the media rather than the actual club they, they work for. Um, but, yeah, Graham Potter was definitely with Bedadad Bali all through those negotiations, so he was completely plugged in on Fernandes. I know for sure he really, he really, really wanted Fernandes, really likes him as a player, really thinks he's what their midfield needs. It wasn't a case of we can sign this superstar midfielder. You're clearly not going to say no, I don't think that was the case at all but Potter's been plugged in look that there's been twists and turns in this midfield chase I mean they made this seems a long time ago now and it seems weird but they, they definitely made an inquiry about Eve Basuma at one point in this transfer window because Graham Potter likes Eve Basuma and because they were struggling on, on midfield targets 
had they have weirdly ended up getting Yves Basuma, I still think they'd have done what they've done on Fernandez. I don't think he was ever thought of as, as coming in instead of someone like Enzo Fernandez. But Yves Basuma wasn't playing at Tottenham. Graham Potter thinks Yves Basuma is a good player. We'll go and inquire about him. I doubt whether that was any owner's input whatsoever. So there's, there's a, a case in point that they're listening to Potter as well as using their own data and everything. I think it's all it's all joined up. I don't see I don't overly see a signing in there. He wouldn't have he he wouldn't have been part of. I mean, even someone like Datro Fafana, he was going to go to Brighton. You know, Paul Wynn Stanley had been chasing Datro Fafana for Brighton. And Graham Potter knew about Datro Fafana from the fact that Brighton had been looking at him for a while. Similarly, Noni Madueke, whose name I hope I pronounced correctly, first time I've had to do it on air. Um, Brighton had been looking at him for a long time as well. Leipzig had as well, so obviously Vivelle knew about him. So when Stanley and Potter knew about Nani Madueke for a while, I actually think if there's one that maybe was done slightly out of nowhere, it would have been Jao Felix. I'm not totally convinced how much input Graham Potter would have had on Jao Felix, but that's alone, remember. And I think... Potter's clearly happy to have Joe Felix at the club and was never going to say no. But I think that was an opportunity presented to the club and the ownership and they went for it and it's a loan. I think that's maybe the only one where I would look at that slightly more as a club, initial club deal than than this collaborative. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like um, like we hijacked that one a little bit. It kind of, like you said, yeah. came out of nowhere. All of a sudden it was like, boom, done. Um, interesting thoughts, uh, on Chelsea's new comms approach to signings and like hyping things up. I mean, the Mudrick thing was weird, you know, tagging him in their bios and stuff before it was announced, clearing their bio last night, you know, and then the Argentina flag. This is a new regime, Matt. Yeah. Look, I'm a, I'm a fairly cynical, miserable 43 year old Englishman who, who looks down my nose at things like that. But it's not meant for me. It's not meant for me. It's meant for it's meant for people a lot more plugged into the modern world at the moment than me. And people people who it's meant for like it. And it 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 feeds into the hype that they want to build around it. So I'm not going to get all upset about it and all cynical about it. Um, it's not for me, but hey, people like it and it's different and it's it's funny. My only complaint is stop sending me push notifications. And when I click it to go into the app, it's not there because <laughs> it hasn't loaded yet. <laughs> that's my that's my only gripe at this time. Yeah, it's just very different, right? And I think I, the only reason I bring that up is just to kind of remind everyone is it's a different Chelsea. It's a different oh. era. You know, it may not be Roman Abramovich, but clearly they're not afraid to disrupt the market. You know, if 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 Bully and Bali within eight months of being in European football have already forced UEFA to restructure FFP and amortization and, you know, Chelsea disrupted it before with the loan army and how that's been done. At the same time, there's a lot of things that are still Chelsea. This is a great point. That is such a good point because Chelsea now feels like a completely different club completely different club like you for the reasons you've been explaining in terms of the social media approach some of the approach to transfers and the hype around it and things and yet you're completely right Chelsea under Abramovich were the great disruptors of English football they you know they had David Dean talking about people firing uh million pound notes out of cannons and all sorts of things like that they were the great disruptors they were the people who came along did everything differently found loopholes and everything they could and basically annoyed the hell out of all the established regime. And to be honest, that's all these guys are doing. It's it's a diff, They're doing it differently. But again, they're the great disruptors. And Chelsea had 20 years, you know, best part of 20 years of, of unbridled success under their last disruptor. And these guys are coming along and, and disrupting it again, disrupting the market again. And we'll hope that it, it brings about the same success. But while it's different ways, it's only what, it's kind of what Chelsea did before. It's not... People are getting, it feels like people are getting so offended by it. And I don't really get why people get offended by it. These guys want to do things differently. They want to push the boundaries. It's, Chelsea have done that before. Other clubs have actually, you know, Man City in roundabout ways with sponsorship deals and things around FFP have, have done that in different ways. 
there's no need to get so upset about it. If they look, if people are breaking the rules, then people can prove people are breaking rules. Completely different kettle of fish. But disrupting the market, I think it's good. What do we want? Everyone to do the same thing for forever. It get very boring. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, uh, it's been fun. It's been exciting. Unfortunately, we have to go back to playing football. Uh, it can't just be <laughs> winning in the transfer window. We got to uh, put it on the pitch. You've got to get higher than 10th. The 10th place Premier League clubs just set the British record transfer. I mean, that yeah. sentence alone is completely mental. Yeah, but who is number two? Jack Grealish? Number two is Jack Grealish from when we were probably about fourth from bottom. But we didn't... But we we sold him. We didn't sign him. Man City signed. Well, so the funny, yeah, and and the funny thing is the the overall transfer records are usually people leaving England and going abroad. You know, you think of Bale and Ronaldo right. and even Eden Hazard. You know, we sold him for a hundred million. Um, obviously, Neymar is the the crazy one that that broke everything. But uh, you know, tenth on twenty nine points. Appreciate you reminding us. Twenty matches played. Uh, you know, uh, top four is 10 points away, which is kind yeah. of a lot. Uh, Villa, still... Villa breathing down your necks. Villa breathing down your necks. On 28 points. Uh, yeah. We're plus one goal difference. You're negative four, but yet we're only one point yeah. away. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's nice and tight. Nice and tight. we got to try to catch Brighton at least. I think but hey, we... I, I think in, in all seriousness, the Champions League starts again in a week or so. And, is that um, is that the is that it is that what Chelsea have left to play for this season is just go all in on the Champions League? Look at the squad and look what's happened before in the Champions League. Why not? This sounds ridiculous. To it's say actually that Chelsea can win. It's the why Champions not League, us, think, Matt? That's what that's what we copyright wrote when we yeah. won it. Why not us? <laughs> ridiculous sounds ridiculous at the moment and maybe proven to be ridiculous, but no reason in my mind why Chelsea can't win the Champions League. They've got phenomenal squad now and if you can make it all click in in a cup environment where you don't need that consistency which is probably the thing that's going to be the most difficult thing to sort out with such a new squad i would imagine the owners are looking at it thinking we let's let's have a go for it might be the only way we get back in the damn thing for next season you're not alone thinking that we've had a lot of discussions on that dan would like to remind everybody it's the easiest way in win eight games or whatever it is and you're done you know so you just win the first Correct. leg, one nothing, zero zero the second leg, and you Correct. go from there's, there. There's, there's, no, there's not a team out there who you look at and think they're the they're the runaway favourites this year. Real Madrid second in La Liga, aren't they? Bayern Munich have been up and down this season. Liverpool having a terrible season. City, strange things going on at City this season. Absolutely re no reason at all why Chelsea shouldn't. Act have a go at that competition well um it's gonna be fun matt thank you so much again love these updates post transfer uh bring in a lot of you know the the deeper knowledge not just the the in and out transactional stuff so thank you for uh sharing the perspective as always go follow matt on twitter read his articles uh we always retweet them as much as we can it's good stuff but um Hey, man, back to the football. Hope your presser on Thursday goes well. I'm sure it's exciting. I'll be watching the stream, listening to see what probing question you uh, zing Potter with. Hopefully he's in a good mood. You know, it was a little touchy there before <laughs> the last break, just in general. Um, if he's not in a good mood now, he'll never be in a good mood. So. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks off, a crazy end of the transfer exactly. window. All right. Exactly. Well, uh, that's going to wrap us up, Chelsea fans. More content all week, as always. Uh, Fulham up next. So until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.